Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, June 18th, and we're doing an episode about a company called White Mountains Insurance. That's for listeners, ticker symbol WTM. Thanks to a listener for pointing out the company and asking for us to talk about it. I will include in here my typical plug. Listeners, if you have a stock that you're interested in, in any of the sectors that we cover, and you want us to talk about it, email us, tweet us, send us a a letter, I guess, if you want to. <laughs> really, anything is is appreciated. We are very happy to dedicate whole episodes to stocks or industries or questions that listeners have, because it's just a cool opportunity for us to examine something that maybe we wouldn't have thought about otherwise. So, um, thanks to a listener, we're going to be talking about White Mountains. Uh, again, that's ticker symbol, WTM in particular. Uh, but of course, first, we're going to start talking about insurance more generally, and then we'll be talking about two of our favorite insurance companies, Markel and Berkshire, and just kind of comparing them a little bit to White Mountains and kind of understanding how uh, the interplay between those different investments is and sort of what how we tend to approach investing in this particular area of the market. So, with all that said, insurance at its core is a pretty simple business. Personally, I think I'm a pretty good driver. Uh, I don't get in car accidents very often. When they do happen, I don't want to be on the hook for that expensive paint job and for you know fixing up my bumper. Insurers take the opposite end of that equation, taking on the risk in exchange for premiums that folks like you and me pay them. And insurers um, make money kind of one of two ways, underwriting profits and investing income. Let's talk about that a little bit, Matt. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I kind of want to piggyback on what Michael said and thank the listener for uh, suggesting White Mountains. Uh, it's a stock I used to follow up till about 10 years ago because it used to be in Warren Buffett's portfolio, which we'll probably mention a little bit later, too. Probably five or 10 but times. <laughs> probably five or 10 times, especially when we start talking about Berkshire. But this is kind of what you're talking about. It kind of gives us a, a great opportunity to talk about a stock that might have fallen off of our radar or we just otherwise wouldn't have gotten a deep dive into. So thank you. Um, but going back to how do insurance companies make money, there's two kind of main revenue streams. Um, first is collecting premiums and making what's called an underwriting profit. That is that the amount of money that is coming in as premiums is greater than the amount of money being paid out for claims. Um, responsible insurers or well-run insurers, you want to look for a positive underwriting profit consistently. It's not going to happen all the time, especially if there's you know a major natural disaster that happens during a quarter. You might see a negative underwriting profit, but generally that's what you want to look for. The other is investment income, and this is really how insurers, especially the ones that we love, make a lot of their money. Um, the beauty of the insurance business is that you're getting billions of dollars in paid-in premiums, and there's a time period between when those premiums come in and when you have to pay out claims to policyholders. And you can insurance companies can invest that money in the meantime while they're waiting to pay out claims and essentially keep all the profits they make on the investments. So underwriting profits is one area and investment profit is the other one. And insurance companies have very different ways that they make investment profits, which we're about to get into. <laughs> right, yeah. There, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, generally speaking, think of it as um, 
kind of these two buckets. And then the real big question with insurers, and one of the things that really makes Markel and Berkshire different from a lot of other insurers, is what they then do with that underwriting with hopefully an underwriting profit, but at least with the float, that is, the uh, premiums that have been paid in that they haven't yet had to pay out for losses or you know damage, whatever happens, um, that they're then able to invest. And that's really kind of one of the key things in insurance, is you've got to have a good capital allocator that invests exceptionally well if you're going to really do well as a company. <clears throat> um, okay, so with that in mind, um, let's turn to White Mountains specifically. Interestingly, White Mountains used to be kind of more of an insurance business. Um, they had about $28 billion in assets under management. <clears throat> but now what they've really done is slimmed down the insurance side so they can really focus in on the uh, investing side, more specifically operating different businesses. Um, so, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, in- insurers tend to invest in other uh, companies sort of one of two ways, either in or one of three ways, I guess. One of them is fixed income, one of them is equities, and the third is actually owning outright other operating businesses. And White Mountains certainly has some fixed income and has some equity, but they're also putting a lot of focus on owning other businesses outright, which again, if that sounds like Markel and Berkshire, well, it's because it is <laughs> similar to what they do, um, but at a much smaller scale. But what's interesting is that White Mountains has also just really kind of slimmed down their exposure to actual insurance underwriting risk so they can focus in on those businesses. And that's a really big difference. A lot of the other insurers that focus on these kind of out-of-the-box investments like Berkshire and Markel, like we're about to talk about, are still focused on insurance largely. Berkshire has Geico and a massive reinsurance operation. Um, And White Mountains just kind of is not focused on insurance anymore. They're focused on other operating businesses. It's kind of like they use the insurance money to build up these operating businesses, then, you know, sold their insurance businesses for the most part. They have a small insurance operation left, but, and then just are kind of relying on their operating businesses going forward. Yeah, so it's almost like they've sort of just taken the conglomerate part of it and just kind of siphoned that off and are con- continuing with that. So, with that in mind, then let's cover the major businesses they own in whole or in part. The first one, of course, HD Global, which is kind of that co- still core insurance company. Um, it includes both Build America Mutual, or BAM for short, uh, and HG Re, which does reinsurance for BAM. I, I love that the company's called BAM. <laughs> Never going to get tired of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, what BAM does is um, provides reinsurance for municipal bonds. Um, when municipalities issue bonds to cover, say, essential projects, that's one of uh, White Mountain's big focuses um, essential project bonds. Um, there's risk to them. So they kind of lay off a little bit of that risk to White Mountain's um, HD Global or BAM division. Yeah, and so when you look at um, when you look at at BAM, um, you know they've they've got about fifty five percent of the transaction market share as of the end of Q one twenty eighteen, but they're only at about sixteen percent of the total addressable market, um, which you know implies lots of room to grow. Of course, at the same time, um, they their market share has actually been falling from about twenty percent year ended twenty fifteen. So that's not exactly the trajectory you generally want to see, uh, and I think that's a concern. Um, you know, looking at the business itself, um, I'm not really that excited about uh, HG Global. It seems like a pretty sleepy business um, because they're they're in munis, but it's not 
it's not uh, any American territory or really any place outside of American states. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just it's not a market that I'm really that personally excited about. Yeah, and uh, from my point of view, the business it seems like a strong, bit, a reasonably strong business financially. Right. Um, it just not that exciting, and it's also worth mentioning that as interest rates are rising, um, a lot of municipalities will issue fewer and fewer bonds, which kind of can shrink this market. Uh, you mentioned that they have a sixteen percent market share right now, but if that market becomes you know half the size, <laughs> right, then investors aren't going to be very happy. Right. Um, so uh, turning to another of their kind of insurance-focused businesses, let's talk about Passport Card and David Shield. So you may have heard of Passport Card and David Shield, perhaps. Passport Card is for uh, travel medical insurance, and David Shield's for expats medical insurance. So the, the differentiator... Well, let me let me step back. So uh, my wife works in the travel industry, and we love to travel. And so uh, we have not uh, personally worked with Passport Card or David Shield, but we're familiar with some of the issues. You go to a foreign country, you break your leg. Things happen, right? Um, the problem is that with a lot of travel insurance, it can uh, travel medical insurance, it can be a pretty painful process. Um, so you you go to the hospital, you pay out of pocket, you're hoping to get a reimbursement two three months down the road. That's not really a fun. Uh, experience. And what they've really done with Passport Card is um, they sort of load the card with the copay um, so that you give that to the hospital, they take their cut, and then everything else has already been kind of pre-negotiated as long as you work within their network. And then, um, and then you know, you don't have to do that reimbursement later. There's just nothing more out of pocket for you, which if you're traveling on a budget, really attractive thing. Um, also, I've got to say, it's a really interesting business with a lot of growth potential. Um, they're annualizing at just over uh, $100 million dollars uh, in in premium, uh, they're still pretty small. Majority of the business is in Israel, um, and they just expanded to Australia. They're planning to expand to Canada, Great Britain, Germany in the near future. They're a small fish in a twenty billion dollar market, and they grew over thirty percent last year. Um, their model as well, uh, and and this is something that you'll see a lot with White Mountains work really across the board. Is they're mostly fees and uh, pass through to insurers. So they're not retaining any risk. What they're just doing is um, getting fees and commission. Uh, from the actual insurance carriers who are underwriting these policies. Yeah, this business definitely has a lot of potential over the long run. Like you said, it's a pretty small part of the piece of the pie right now. Um, but there's, there, um, as you said, they're planning to expand into a few countries going forward. And the fact that it's fee income kind of takes the risk out. And it makes for you know, a less exciting business than if they were actually the insurer themselves here. But... It's definitely a high potential business, and I'm curious to see where this goes over the next, you know, five, ten, twenty years. Yes, um, yeah, travel in general is just a really interesting space. Um, another insurance adjacent business that they have is NSM Insurance Group. So this one's just. Uh, uh, it's a little weird. Uh, so they operate in 19 very different niche industries. So we're talking brewery and winery insurance, private and charter school insurance, pet insurance, addiction treatment centers, um, it just in a few. So, so these are really inefficient, small niche markets. Um, and so there's probably some nice opportunity for them. And, and, and again, what NSM Insurance is doing is... Um, they are getting a it's a it's another commission business so they're passing on um this business to other insurance underwriters who are putting up the capital and what they're just doing is collecting a fee basically for sourcing and structuring this business in a way that other insurance carriers can work with 
Yeah, I, I would prefer if they were the insurer themselves here because this is a pretty lucrative business model when you do it correctly. Yes. Um, a lot of these, like like you said, um, you know, pet insurance, um, uh, school insurance, uh, beer, brewery and winery insurance. These are things that a lot of risk assessors don't know how to assess the risk on. So it can be a very lucrative market, especially if you're one of the only companies writing policies in a certain niche. So I would prefer that they were the insurer, but it's definitely an interesting business. And it's a business, like I mentioned, that really in a lot of these niches don't really have much competition. Right. So it's that's definitely a big competitive advantage. But like I said, I prefer they were the insurer themselves. Well, and one of my other concerns here is that, like, what's to stop an insurer from just cutting them out? I mean, okay, so with with Passport Card and David Shield, like, they've created a process flow that just makes things easier that can enable an insurer to focus on, you know, offering the insurance and them to focus on the customer service. And those of you who have dealt with insurers know that customer service tends not to be a strong point, right? So, so that actually makes sense as sort of them being an intermediary and taking a cut. But with this, it's really helping source business. And you would think that those insurers, once they've had enough time to kind of build up a book of business and get used to certain things and say, okay, here's what the, the loss ratio is going to look like. I don't really, it's not really very clear to me what would prevent another insurer from saying, okay, so NSM Insurance Group, it's been great. We've spent the last five years really learning from you. Now we're going to insure breweries and wineries ourselves um, and take you out uh, as the middleman so that we can offer a more competitive product. And another reason it would be great if they were the actual insurer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, this one is just kind of odd to me, particularly because they've got plenty of capital. Um, we'll get to that, I'm sure, a bit more. Um, let's turn to another insurance-adjacent business. Are, are you seeing a trend yet? A lot of insurance-adjacent businesses. Um, one of their uh, other really big ones is called Media Alpha. So this is a company that specializes in what's called uh, vertical search. So Consumers in certain areas think folks looking to buy a plane ticket or purchase insurance or rent a car uh, start entering in some very specific data in very specific websites that are that are sort of designed to facilitate transactions. So think like an Expedia or a Kayak, for example. And, and basically, by entering in that information like travel dates and, you know, uh, you know, city of origin and city they're trying to fly to and that sort of thing. They're basically saying, hey, I am trying, I'm price shopping right now. I am trying to make this decision right now. Um, and that's sort of what this idea of vertical search is. Um, think auto insurance. You know, you've got a lot of different options. Chances are good you're on there because you're trying to get an auto insurance locked down now because you just bought a car. And it's high intent. And so it's a really interesting business and one that um, folks offering products really want to get in front of those people and are willing to pay a lot per lead to do so because these are people who are trying to make the decision right then. And being the first on the page or the most attractive initial offer might just get it done. Um, so what Media Alpha does is kind of figure out dynamic content and pricing and things like that based on what they know about the user. And it's a fee-based business, again, so no capital at risk. But it's an interesting business because, again, this is something where if you have a really specific set of expertise, which is in kind of how to market and how to um, use data to kind of price things, um, that can give you an inherent advantage over the insurers who are really just looking to go through the clearinghouse and make sure that something is going to kind of make them the money. They're not digital marketers at heart. And so it's a really interesting business. Um, one of my concerns, though, is just how many niches they can get into, as well as the fact that there are a billion and one media companies trying to do something similar. Um, there are ad agencies all over the place. And uh, 
if they have an advantage now, and it appears that they do, it's not clear how long or durable that advantage is going to be, given the incredible disruption going on across the internet every day. Yeah, it's kind of the counter of that is that this is arguably the most the strongest area of White Mountain's business right now, especially in recent results. Um, Their first quarter wasn't particularly strong. Um, Municipal bonds kind of were written less or issued less by you know, municipalities. So that market kind of declined a little bit. Uh, Media Alpha has more than doubled in revenue over the past year. Some of that was due to an acquisition, but mo- a lot of it's just growth. So this has been a very successful area so far. But like Michael said, it's just it's tough to identify their durable competitive advantage here. Yeah. And I mean, again, this isn't to say that it's not the best business in its space right now. It may well be. It's just that Frankly, eight other people with laptops might be able to figure out something similar. Uh, Not immediately, but over time. Okay, so there's one other major business we're going to call out, uh, and then we're going to head to a quick commercial break. So, uh, Kudu Investment Management. Um, So, what uh, uh, White Mountains recently did a $250 million round uh, investing in Kudu Investment Management with Oaktree, which... Uh, for the hardcore investors among you, that's Howard Marks's shop. Uh, Howard Marks wrote uh, one of the books that has most influenced me as an investor. It's called The Most Important Thing. Um, highly recommend it. I think it's a great read, and it really changed how I thought about growth and value investing. So, what Kudu does is their advisory services uh, primarily, and then they also uh, provide capital to asset management companies in very specific circumstances. So, um, one thing that they're particularly focused on is. You know, when you've got senior partners in an asset management firm, maybe they're looking to retire, um, but of course they want to to get paid well to leave this kind of lucrative business that they've built up. And you've got the younger uh, junior folks who are usually pretty hungry um, and really want to take this take the reins, take this firm to the next level, but they don't have capital. So what Kudu does is kind of provides that capital in exchange for uh, an equity share and um, usually a pretty significant portion of revenue that they get to siphon off and keep for themselves. So it's a really uh, attractive uh, business model, assuming that asset management does well long term. Which, um, if asset managers can do a good job of handling indexing and 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 robo advisors, seems like a reasonable bet. Yeah, I just kind of worry about the the fees that they'll be able to command, kind of dwindling in the future, as we talked about with our robo advisors and the other um, disruptor disruptors in the area, kind of over time, eating away at the fee structures that they can command. Yeah. Um, so kind of looking overall at their at their businesses, I mean, there are, there are a couple here that are pretty attractive, but I, I do see all of them being pretty open to being um, pretty significantly disrupted. I, I think the most uh, kind of attractive one to my mind in terms of underlying profit and, and protection against disruption is the Passport Card and David Shield. The question there is, what's the scale going to look like long term? Can this really get big? And that's not clear. Yeah, personally, I like the. I, I wish they would stick more with their core insurance business and um, and municipal bonds. They have a pretty big market share. Um, there's only one other major major competitor out there, uh, Sure Guarantee, I believe it is. Right. Um, so I, I wish they would kind of try to build on that a little bit more. But I, I do love the passport card idea. I think that's a very high growth market. It solves a big problem. So I really like where that's going to go in the future too. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. All right. So, note from our sponsor. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. 
Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Okay, so let's also talk. I mean, we've we've spent a lot of time really digging into these underlying businesses because that's going to be the real key to White Mountain's long-term success from here. Um, and and uh, you know, I think that's going to be really core to the investing thesis if anyone's interested in buying the the company. But let's also talk about their equities and fixed income investment portfolio because that's a pretty big amount of money, and it's certainly doing a lot to drive uh, or not, as the case may be, results. It is. Um, the investment portfolio is about $3.4 billion right now. Uh, about two-thirds of that is fixed income investments. You know, Bonds, mortgage-backed securities makes up a pretty large portion of it. And the bonds have pretty staggered maturities. Um, generally, about you know six to ten years seems to be the average. Um, mostly investment-grade rated. And on the equity side, which makes up close to one third of the portfolio, this isn't an equities portfolio in the sense that Berkshire Hathaway has, you know, the Buffett stocks. Right. This is this is a bunch of mostly passive ETFs. So this is essentially, you know, like an S and P index fund would be an example of something that they could invest in. We don't really have a big, li- a long list, a detailed list of how they invest their money, but they do say it's mostly passive ETFs and stock portfolios managed by third parties. This is not. The Buffett portfolio, right? Um, and and I think that's one of the kind of key things to keep in mind here as a difference between this and a Mar- uh, a Markel or a Berkshire is that this is a company that really isn't necessarily trying to find the next great investments that are going to beat the market. What they're mostly looking to do is invest in sectors through ETFs, um, and that that's a thing that you know certainly if they have a core area of competence, which is something else, uh, makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, when you've got a company that's largely dropped its insurance business, which theoretically was its core area of competence, and it's also not really picking stocks on the uh, investment side, a lot really starts to depend on those wholly or partially owned companies that it's operating. And uh, I think we've got a lot of question marks about those. So that's certainly a big concern for me. Yeah, definitely. This is... um... It's not an investment portfolio in the sense they're investing the float, kind of what you just said. Right. Um, they're investing, you know, their own capital at this point to try to achieve a return, and it's a much different business model. Yeah, um, which is interesting because again, you know, they, they used to be more com- comparable, but that's definitely become a little bit less so over time. So let's think about a bit about how this company stacks up to say a, a Markel or a Berkshire. Excuse me, just in terms of thinking about companies in the insurance business and. Uh, and whether they make attractive uh, potential investments. So, I mean, one of the things for me is, let's consider the size difference. So, White Mountains, as of this morning, has a roughly $3.4 billion market cap. So, it's fairly small, particularly when you compare it to Markel at $15.4 billion and Berkshire at almost $500 billion. Um, these are companies that are operating in just very different leagues from each other. Um, and there's just kind of a really big scale difference there. Yeah, the scale difference can be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, one of Buffett's biggest complaints is how big Berkshire is, <laughs> right. that it's really tough to effectively invest his money. So this is something where this is an area where it can actually work out in favor. Like for um, just one of the businesses we talked about, um, 
uh, NSM Insurance is one Buffett probably wouldn't even look at. It's a relatively small player. Um, same with uh, Media Alpha is another one that you know Buffett probably wouldn't give a second look to just because it really wouldn't move the needle on Berkshire's balance sheet. Um, so these are kind of opportunities that a smaller, smaller player in the industry could really could invest in, and it could really make a meaningful difference if they're successful. Yeah, um, and um, and and that's a that's a very legitimate thing, and and that's one of the reasons why they've been able to go after these sort of like really niche businesses that might have some really attractive uh, scale up opportunities long term. Um, you know. I, for me, I just keep coming back to the fact that this is a company that's really taken away the insurance float side of things and is just investing basically cash that they've kept on the books now. Um, that feels in a lot of ways a lot riskier. Uh, and um, personally, I, I'm not as excited about most of their businesses uh, as I am about, say, a Fruit of the Loom for Berkshire or some of Markel's ventures. Um, so, you know, for me at least, I'm I'm just not terribly attracted to White Mountains as a potential investment from here. And we haven't even talked about the the company's buybacks yet. Oh, oh um, yes, let's do that. Yeah, so th- that's that's been a big part of the story over the past few years because I think they've they've bought back about thirty percent of their shares over the past year or so. Yeah, about um, about thirty three percent since the end of twenty fifteen. It's wild. Yeah, what's called a, a a Dutch auction or reverse Dutch auction, I think it is where um, they offer kind of an above market price to shareholders to get them to sell their stock instead of just kind of what most companies do when they buy back shares is just buy them back on the open market. So they're um, just, for example, um, before the uh, latest tender offer was made in April, White Mountains was trading about $806 the day before, and they made the tender offer it up to $875. So it was, it almost feels like they were kind of overpaying for their own stock to be able to get out of these, other businesses. Yeah. Um, well, and this is a thing that we've actually seen in a lot of financials where companies will buy back shares at the wrong time. Um, there's uh, Bank of America was buying back shares at like 4x what they uh, what they were trading for during the financial crisis beforehand. And then, of course, they had to dilute, uh, on the other hand, to pick up money to, to gain cash during the financial crisis, which really hurt them and hurt uh, underlying shareholders. Um, you know, pain that I think has still persisted really until a lot more recently. Um, so this feels a little bit like that. Um, but more fuel to the fire that um, when management is buying back shares, that is not necessarily a good sign for the business. Yeah, it, I, like I, said, I, would have, I wish they would have just kept some of their insurance operations and not done that. But. Yeah. Well, that's just me. <laughs> well, and and we're not the only folks who've um, who've kind of turned away from the company. Um, you know, Buffett used to be a shareholder, um, and so you know the fact that he uh, essentially divested from White Mountains is also, I think, a part of the story when thinking about this company. Yeah, but um, just to kind of give you a little bit of context, Buffett had a pretty sizable stake. I think about one sixth of the company. Uh, from about 2000 to about 2008, right before the financial crisis. So talk about a case of good timing. <laughs> he got out. He got out just in time. Um, but Buffett was a big fan of the CEO at the time, who's no longer the CEO anymore. Um, he essentially invested in White Mountains to help them make an acquisition, which they've since divested as you know as part of their get out of the insurance business plan. So it's a very different company than Buffett invested in. Um, like I said, I used to follow White Mountains a lot when it was a Buffett stock. And if any of the listeners did as well, this is 
it's worth pointing out this is not the same company that Buffett owned in his portfolio. Right. Um, and and yeah, I mean, just uh, again, I think when I when I look at this company, there's just not a lot that I'm really excited by. I mean, the fact that it's small is 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 good and certainly gives optionality. But um, I tend to think that if you're looking for reasonably small, Markel is a better bet, um, just because you know they invest in individual stocks. They've had a really good run with investing in tech stocks. Um, they've got a very sizable ventures group, which is moving the needle for them meaningfully. Um, and they're still in the insurance business, and they're in these kind of niche, difficult to uh, value spaces. That, you know, similar to uh, what White Mountains is, but the difference is that they are actually pocketing all that profit uh, on the premium side, on the underwriting side, instead of just trying to kind of do it in a fee commission way, um, which can hopefully help them sort of build up more cash in the short term before insurers cut them out. Yeah, Markel is definitely a kind of still using all of their insurance money to invest. It's it's they're still they're the closest thing to a, a mini Berkshire in the in the market right now. Yeah. Cool. Well, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Mount Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.